Hi folks, welcome to Financial Planning Conversations, the podcast about giving great financial advice and matching people with the right investments. I'm your host, Craig Saunders. Today, we're talking about trust in financial services, particularly when those services are being delivered by machine rather than by a human. This flows on from our last podcast, where we discussed a Vanguard report on trust and financial advisors, which found that only a small part of trust comes from capability and credentials. The bulk of trust comes from how the relationship develops, which brings us to that question. How do automated advice processes incorporate those trust-building attributes? That's what we'll be delving into over the next 20 minutes or so. But first, a reminder that this podcast is brought to you by Plan Plus, delivering great financial advice tools like Plan Plus Planet, My Plan Plus, and Finometrica. For more details, go to planplus.com or find out more about the Finometrica risk profiling tools at riskprofiling.com. Now, let's quickly recap that Vanguard report from the last program because it sets the context for today's discussion too. It found that only 17% of trust in advisors came from their qualifications. Ethics was almost twice as important at 30%. The other 53%, well, that came down to emotional factors, the intangibles of the relationship. A lot of that revolves around how the advisor makes the client feel. Big drivers of trust are advocating for a client and acting in the client's best interests. Now, let's welcome our guest commentator, Paul Resnick from Plan Plus. Paul, good to have you here with us from Ireland today. Top of the morning to you, Craig. Now, when we spoke about that Vanguard research last time, there was an inherent assumption there that we were talking about financial advisors as a human advisor. But of course, increasingly advisors are robots or computer programs. Can they ever hope to enjoy that same level of trust and loyalty as a human might? I think that might be on the relatively straightforward um, client experiences, perhaps when there's a, um, in what we would traditionally now call robo, you know, for amounts under $50,000 where you're just promoting two or three portfolios with relatively low extremes, that is um, not too high equity exposure and not too too high um, defensive exposure on the bottom side. I think we can engender trust. But the moment we start going into the slightly more complicated, larger amounts with issues that are much more emotional, um, how to do trade-offs between husbands and wives, different longevity, inheritance, where the judgment of the advisor comes into play. I'm uh, I'm certainly far less certain that um, artificial intelligence will be our uh, be our friend. And as we've discussed before, those situations have so many variables in there. It's like that 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 Rumsfeldian unknown unknowns. Very very hard to program an algorithm around unknown unknowns it is precisely that the the, the trick of great advice is to to probe and listen and to to help people make great decisions um great decisions for them decisions that they own um the the critical issue of the last uh, last 10 years has has got to be that um, paternalistic advice advisors or algorithms knowing precisely what the client should take um, leaves everybody very vulnerable. The, the, the advisor who, who focuses just on investment and doesn't listen to the client makes themselves vulnerable. And we can see it in some of the responses to uh, in the report. Um, w- what broke trust are largely issues around unframed expectations and portfolios that don't meet uh, the needs of clients' uh, 
Um, I think the warnings are there. Artificial intelligence will take you somewhere, somewhere along the line. But in the end, um, a good advisor who, who listens to their clients' needs and helps them prioritise them is going to be uh, um, absolutely necessary. Vanguard identified 19 different factors that contribute to trust in a relationship with a financial advisor. Now, if we sat down and started pulling apart the code in robo-advisors, how many of those factors do you reckon we'd find built into most of them? Oh, what a good question. Um, well, clearly, at stage one, um, robo-advisors have to deal with whatever the law demands of um, of the uh, of the licensed person um, promoting the uh, the portfolio. But after then, life gets very difficult. Um, robots do what they can do, but but of course the, the the major flaw is is how they deal with suitability. Um, if you come to the robo with the view that your primary goal is to have funds under advice. But then you're going to make it as easy as possible to enter data, to have minimal questions and get to a portfolio recommendation before the client or the prospect gets bored. If, on the other hand, you'd like to be uh, have greater certainty that when the market's correct, you're not going to be inundated by unhappy clients and phone calls from people um, requesting background information and some advice on what to proceed then you will have invested significantly into the suitability process and um, might well have uh, um, a substantial commitment to, uh, to offloading to humans those, uh, those clients who, who answer questions with a, an inconsistent um, answer. So let me give you an example of, uh, of how this might work. You, you might put together, say, six suitability questions around risk tolerance and say, um, we will just average scores. So to test the, in, the integrity of that, you might answer the first question high, the second question low, the third question high, and so on. Um, the report will come out if it's not been, um, if the algorithm hasn't been scored intelligently, you're an average risk-tolerant investor. Clearly what will have happened here, of course, is you're a mad investor. And... What the system should say is you need to go and talk to an advisor or think again before you invest with us. And that would be a perfect example of how a shortcut um, might, might impact the quality of um, your attention over time. Now, in my experience of looking at robos, I haven't really seen a lot that say to you, you know, we're going to, we're going to give you a wonderful client experience and frame your expectations. What they tend to say is, we're going to be right and technically correct. But as the Vanguard research showed, that's actually a very, very minor part of what builds trust. It only counted for something like 4% compared to the 53%, which was all emotional. So the claim to fame of a robo of being technically right and being able to hit that mark time and time and time again doesn't seem to carry a lot of weight with the public. It would seem not. Now, we, we have to, to, to just be... Um be aware here that this, these are intermediated clients who have been surveyed and not ones that have come through a robo. So we must be cautious in, uh, to some degree. But, but I think we all know from, from practice that, um, that there are health minimums that you have to do in a business 
but 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 often it is the personality of the business that holds you there. It is the engagement of the staff. It is their smile. It's their uh, it's that they asked after you. That they remember you came before and what your favourite uh, biscuit might be. It's the lighting. Um, there's so many things that go on, and if we paralleled what happens in a retail shop um, compared to, to uh, and contrast it with a robo, you can have all the healthy things, but people still might not buy in that shop because it doesn't touch them emotionally. And I think that's the big issue that, uh, that, that we need to be conscious of. And we can see it actually in one of the fascinating patterns. The first run of robos were normally successful. We look at betterment and wealth front, um, up to about five bill going direct to the public. And then they've, well, virtually everybody has, has, now, um, has now tilted their business to bring in advice. And, but that can't be a coincidence. It, it has to be because uh, people want an emotional commitment. They want to be able to connect with somebody with a bit of warmth in their voice that makes, uh, makes this uh, frightening decision more personal. Now, it's time to talk about corrections because we've just passed the 30-year anniversary of the 1987 stock market crash where the market fell 25% in a day. And I think we could imagine the shock and awe and horror that would happen if that happened again today. So 30 years on, Paul, has anything really changed? Um, I was just reflecting upon um, upon the re- research around that crash. Um, many of us uh, in the industry of grey hair and uh, wider girth um, as we age, we'll remember um, 87. For me, it was uh, recognition that we were we, we didn't deal very well with people's expectations. Um, I was working on St Kilda Road in, in Melbourne on the ground floor, and I'd never met an investor in the enterprise that had employed me at that stage. So I had six months of very angry Yorkshiremen telling me how stupid I was, but not quite using language as gentle as that. Um, and I've come away from it um, with the view that that was pretty much uh, a, a, a raw emotional response. To compare and contrast, back in 1987, I was also in St Kilda Road in Melbourne in a different building to Paul. And I was meeting a lot of investors because I was the administration manager of a global equity fund, largely invested in the US at that time. The fund was six days old, six days old when the 87 crash happened. And so I dealt with advisors on the phone who would call me up and say, four days ago, we gave you $100,000. Today, it's worth 75. What's happened? And as a young man, I'd have to say to them, I don't know what to tell you because I didn't know what to tell them because they had no idea that such a thing was possible. And the timing for them, of course, was, was terrible. So, Paul, if those times are coming back again, how do we protect against them? Well, we have to frame people's expectations. Um, it's you know, picking the top of a bubble is very difficult. Um, do, do you stay out and then and then come back in? Um, do you withdraw from the market now and um, take the risk that you don't participate in another fifteen or twenty percent growth? Um, that, that, that's that, that's how you have to work your way through and balance that off. Um, what I've learned over my last 50 years is in the industry is that uh, you can never be right all of the time if you're market timing. You just be cautious. At the moment, there seem to be substantial warning signals. I wouldn't have anybody over-invested or under-invested if you were to ask my advice. 
but I'm not an advisor. What I will tell you is that um, dissatisfaction comes when you don't warn people, when you don't collaborate with them, if you tell them what to do. And um, for those of, uh, of our listeners who um, may have taken uh, the opportunity to look at our risk and return guide, um, it was specifically developed over the last 10 years to help advisors frame expectations. And amongst the other things it shows, that diversified portfolios have always recovered um, within a five or six year period from their highs to the previous highs, um, as long as clients stayed invested and uh, didn't run. So there should be good comfort in the past that a diversified portfolio may not uh, manage the, the downturn uh, as well as he would have liked, but they always recover and go on to, to, to further highs. Um, over time as long as they're appropriately diversified. I want to come to why robos are failing in that task of, of explaining things adequately to clients, but I just want to background it first. Podcasts such as we're doing now shouldn't work by all logic, logic that existed seven or eight years ago. Ours is a relatively short podcast at 20 to 25 minutes. Many of them run for an hour and a half to two hours, and people lock in for that length of time, which is something that people said would never happen because attention spans are so short. And so that's why I find myself doubting people in the robo-environment who say, oh, look, we've got to get everything done quick because people's attention span is short. This is their savings. This is their money. I believe... And I know this is in the face of data. I believe that people would invest more time because it's salient to them. Perhaps it's in the way that it's being delivered to them. What are your thoughts? Common sense suggests that, and there's bits of evidence. So when I talk with our, with our German partner, um, um, feedback from her, and she, she's a, a psychologist, so, so she's, she's much closer to, to, to the emotional world than those of us are. Have come to this um, through financial services, um, but she constantly tells me that, that the feedback when when she talks with advisors and their clients is they like the longer interrogation that goes with twenty five rather than twelve questions for the very reasons that you raise. But this is an important issue, and uh, it, it's it, it is so significant. And as you get older, get closer to baby baby boomer and not being able to to have the time to replace assets but uh, but, but you're going to be um, de-accumulating um, the more information that you've shared to a meaningful interpreter the better will you be your outcome because you'll get the nuanced benefits of advice now, Paul, let's set robos aside for a moment. As I mentioned at the top of the show, you're in Ireland at the moment and you've just been to a conference there. Give me a very quick recap of what that was about. I was invited to speak at a conference for the Financial Planning Standards Board Ireland. Um, a feather in, uh, in my cap. I've never been invited to such an august organisation around the world before. Um, um, so it was um, essentially looking at global standards on suitability and uh, particularly with, it, with an emphasis on, uh, on sequence risk and trust. Interestingly enough, um, th th these issues are, uh, are quite universal. Um, it's quite ironic. I gave a talk in London the other day, and it was on very similar topics. What can we learn from good advisors around the world? And uh, 
and their experiences with um, with running successful businesses. Um, and trust always comes to the top. The, the, the ability to uh, to have uh, clients that are comfortable in knowing something about their future, how it might uh, work its way out in good times and bad and have some notion of how they might manage the bad times. Now, the Irish market's an interesting case study for us because the CFP, the Certified Financial Planner designation, is only relatively new there, the first class only graduating there in in 2011. So I caught up with the organiser of that conference, Paul Grimes, and asked him about the rollout of the CFP in Ireland. Paul, thanks for coming onto the podcast. It's a pleasure, Craig. Thank you very much for the uh, opportunity. We've just been discussing investment suitability and trust in financial advice. Now, Ireland's had its fair financial services trust issues, what with bank collapses and plummeting real estate values. It, it has, um, I, and I, I, would, I, I would suggest it's probably more expansive than um, issues with the financial services sector per se, because many of the contributing factors to the failure um, have... have uh, originated in political decisions and so there is uh, from a consumer perspective there is a, a, a great level of dissatisfaction uh, with the uh, political system as much as there is with the financial services uh, sector itself but it is fair to say that uh, trust has been damaged um, in, in certainly in, in, in the provision of financial planning services to consumers. Now the certified financial planning designation has been introduced to Ireland, but only only relatively recently, with your first class graduating in 2011. Was that a response to that environment, and, and what sort of difference has it made? Yeah, no, good question. Um, the, the system in Ireland is that we have a licensing system uh, which is uh, based on a set of minimum competencies framed by the Central Bank of Ireland, and, and what that means is that every practitioner in Ireland must have a base level of competency evidenced by what's called a uh, Qualified Financial Advisor uh, designation. The uh, introduction of the CFP, uh, the work on that had started uh, much earlier. Uh, So it it came in, uh, the first program started 2009 in terms of the education program, with the first licenses being awarded in 2011. But the, the actual genesis for it was actually the need or within the industry for uh, recognition of practitioners uh, who provided services at a much higher level than the minimum competency. And so this uh, requirement or demand from practitioners themselves to be recognized in a way or then at minimum competency level. And so, uh, and that's where the uh, CFP was born out of uh, in terms of the demand for it in Ireland. So it, it happened to coincide with the crisis rather than uh, originate from it. And has it been received? Very well, very well. Uh, so, so thus far, uh, we have uh, achieved acceptance across the broad financial services industry. Uh, so, in other words, we have uh, CFP practitioners in the uh, independent sector, the banking sector, the insurance sector, stockbroking, and uh, also crossing over into some of the other professions, such as accountancy and so the larger battle, I think, now is going to be winning the hearts and minds of consumers. Um, and that's that's a journey we're just starting out on. So do you promote the CFP as a higher technical standard or as a higher standard across the board, including in those areas that would influence trust? Yeah, no, it, it, it is across the board. So so the, the programme of education 
uh, obviously has a higher uh, uh, technical competency aspect to it. Uh, but the other side of it is that it does um, it does challenge practitioners or, or, or participants uh, in terms of thinking through uh, the type of business model that is required to deliver a financial planning service as we uh, prescribe it. And so I suppose what we are seeing, um, and this isn't across the board, but certainly we are seeing changes in the nature of the uh, industry in Ireland and the nature of financial planning services that are being provided to consumers. Um, and there is, a, there is a progression amongst the CFP community towards goal-based financial planning and, and professionals recognising that there is a need for a different model of business uh, in order to advance the, uh, the trust agenda with consumers. And certainly an interesting case study in how you deliver a designation like that to the market. Paul, we'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Craig. So, Paul Resnick, it must have been interesting to catch up with those guys in Ireland. It was indeed. Um, I, I've not, not been very much engaged in CFP and financial planning standards boards. I've always been anxious that uh, they don't teach suitability and they leave vulnerability. They leave their people very vulnerable to being miseducated by uh, their employers. And it was good to, to have the invitation. Um, um, I, I take the view that this is um, an opening of discussion and I would like to be engaged and encourage uh, that those people working in places like the Financial Planning Standards Boards to prepare their students for the world as it is, which is one of um, lots of conflicts. And the best way to do that is to have a very well-educated uh, student base who are able to make judgments about what is good and bad advice and they, that they don't need to work in organisations that, um, that push them to product rather than client and they have the skills to make that judgment. I think it's a critical part of every, uh, every advisor's um, preparation for work that they, they understand the ideal form of suitability before they get caught in the vicious practicalities of daily life. Paul Resnick from Plan Plus, as always, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Craig, and good morning to you. And he's not just putting that on. Paul is visiting his birthplace. And, of course, folks, a big thanks to all of you for tuning into the program. Paul Resnick tells me he's been bumping into a few of you in his travels around the world, and we both love to hear about how you guys tune in and what you take away from these discussions. Finally, a thank you to our program sponsor, Plan Plus. For more details about their financial planning tools, go to planplus.com, and for Finometrica risk profiling tools, go to riskprofiling.com. I'm Craig Saunders. Bye for now.